just lift up your hand. You guys hit the record button. Okay. John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. It just so happened that we were close enough to this verse that we took a little detour last week so that we could do this passage of Scripture on the actual Palm Sunday, on the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. So today, with the triumphal entry, the countdown to the cross begins. Now, the countdown actually began on Friday, March, 37, March 27th, rather, 33 A.D. So just this past Friday, Jesus had been having dinner at Martha and Mary's house. He had entered into, into Bethany with his disciples. And um, so that on that Saturday, he entered in on Friday, that Saturday, March 28, 33 A.D., which would have been yesterday for us, he had supper with Lazarus while Martha served the meal and Mary anointed his feet. You remember that when we were there. And John does something unique. He doesn't record the events like the other gospel writers record the events of Jesus' final days. John's whole intent, his purpose for the gospel is to show Jesus as the Messiah. And his writings are dedicated to that end. So we see a different side of Jesus. But we're going to learn from the other Gospels. We're going to utilize the other Gospels to learn what it was like in these last ten days of Jesus' life. And that's really the, the time frame we're talking about here. As we go through these next ten chapters of John, Lord willing, it's really the last ten days of these ten days of Jesus' days on this earth. And so the period we're talking about today is Friday, March 27th, 33 A.D. And it goes from... Friday of last week, I'm sorry, Sunday, March 27th. Well, let me back up. The period we're talking about, those 10 days, are Friday, March 27th, 33 A.D., which was this past Friday, all the way up to Sunday, April 5th, 33 A.D., the day of the crucifixion. So we're going to cover that period of time. And as we go, as I said, as we go through these next 10 chapters of John, although he doesn't use the same um, method of describing Jesus' last 10 days, if you will, as the others do, we're going to refer back and forth to the other Gospels to show us just where we're at in this journey to the cross. Now, obviously, we're going to get to Easter before we finish the Gospel of John, unless I can pull out ten chapters, um, ten chapters in one day. But we're, we'll talk about the crucifixion itself when we get to the crucifixion in John. Lord willing, our message for Easter Sunday is going to be the choice, Jesus or Barabbas. So for us today, this is Sunday, March 29th, 33 A.D. Don't bother looking at your calendar on the app on your phone. Just take my word for it. And so it's, it's Sunday, March 29th, 33 A.D., as Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. And we're going to pick up the countdown to the cross, which is April 5th, 33 A.D., we're going to pick up the countdown to the cross beginning with today. So look at verse 12 of chapter 12. The next day, the great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. So let me, let me paint a little picture here of what's going on in Jerusalem around this time. 
in 33 AD. The population of Jerusalem normally on any given day is 500 to 600,000 people. However, this isn't any given, this isn't any ordinary week. This is Passover week. We're heading into Passover. And so the crowds there would have swelled to well over 2 million people. In fact, Josephus, I don't know, maybe he had one of those little clickers. He did a head count as everybody came through the gate. And he said there was 2,500,000 people in Jerusalem. This is a tense time in the city, especially for the Roman soldiers who had to control all of this. Now, there's a lot less Roman soldiers than we may think. Judea was considered a, a small province by anybody's standards, so Rome was not allowed, allotted the same amount of guards that other areas would have had. They only had about 3,000 troops at their disposal. Most of them would have been stationed at Caesarea where Pilate stayed, which is a little bit of a distance from Jerusalem. But at any given time, there were usually 500, 600 Roman soldiers stationed in the Antonia Fortress. And their job was to watch over the Temple Mount and make sure there wasn't any disturbances. It's funny how even then, to now, to this day, there's still disturbances on that Temple Mount, right? It's still a hotbed. And we see that very thing happening in Scripture when the Jewish authorities sought to kill Paul. Remember they sought to kill Paul because Paul was falsely accused of bringing Gentiles into the temple, so they went after Paul to kill him. And uh, the commander in the Antonio Fortress heard the commotion on the temple steps, and he takes a couple hundred of his men to put down the uprising and to take Paul with him back to the fortress. But with over 2 million people in the city at this time, 3,000 soldiers isn't anywhere near enough to put down any kind of revolt if the people decided to raise up against Rome. And listen, this is in the back of this crowd's mind. They know this. They know they have the numerical, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? The numerical advantage, that's the word. They have the numerical advantage. All they need is a king to lead them. So you get what's going on here? In their minds, this is all happening. And so it's a really tense time for Rome. And as much as Rome disliked doing this, they had to deal with the Jewish authorities. Because there were so few of them, they had to count on the leadership of the Jews to keep the peace in the city. And the Jewish authorities were what? They're plotting to kill Jesus at this point. Because they see Jesus as a threat to that very peace that they've been asked to keep. If the people continue to follow Jesus the way they have been, what did the Pharisees say? All of Jerusalem will be saved, right? If they keep following Jesus the way they were... That meant for the Pharisees that they were going to lose their influence and their control over the people. So you'd think Jesus, knowing this, knowing what's going on, would just kind of lay low for a while, right? Just go on the lamb. There's a little pun there for you. Just go on the lamb for a while, until at least till after Passover. But what does Jesus do? He rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. That's just not who he is, right? He came to save the world from sin and death, and nothing or no one was going to prevent him from doing that. So the religious leaders saw him as a threat to the people, when in fact, he's the Prince of Peace. He's, he came to restore our peace with God. He's not a threat to peace as they perceived him to be. He is the very Prince of Peace. And the fact that he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, that's the sign that he has come in peace. 
And so as Jesus rides in on a donkey, there's a multitude of people there to greet him. And this causes quite a stir, not because of the numbers, but because of what they're saying and what they're doing. Matthew's Gospel gives us this whole story in a little bit more detail. So if you would, turn to Matthew chapter 21. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. Matthew 21. Anyone need a Bible? Did I say that? Anybody need a Bible? Slip up their hands if you don't, if you don't have a Bible. I guess we covered that. All right. So Matthew 21, beginning in verse 1. Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a colt. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and laid their clothes on them and sat him on them, and the very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of, Nazareth of Galilee. Who is this? A prophet? Yes. But so much more. He's also king and priest. And, and so let's look at this statement for a minute. Who is he? Or at least, who does the multitude, who does the crowd believe that he is? For those who knew the scripture, there's a couple of prophecies being fulfilled here right before their very eyes. The first one is found in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which is fulfilled by Jesus. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And we tend to think, okay, that's pretty cool. This prophecy is fulfilled right here. You know, it's, it's fulfilled before us. And, and some even have criticized this and said, well, Jesus could have easily set this up, knowing the prophecy himself could have just set this up with the donkey. But we missed the bigger picture here. And the bigger picture is what the crowd did and what the crowd said. You see, even if Jesus did set this up and, and rode this donkey in the fulfillment of this scripture, he could not have controlled what the multitude of people said, right? They had no idea. The con a conquering king, any conquering king who was riding into a city that he had conquered or was planning on conquering, certainly would not have rode into that city on a donkey. He would have ridden in on a, on a, a powerful steed dressed for embattlement. He would have had a sword strapped to his side, but Jesus didn't ride in on a horse. If he had, it would have conveyed a lot different message to the crowd. Riding in on a donkey conveyed a message of peace. The Prince of Peace came in peace to restore our peace with our Father in Heaven. Amen? He didn't come to conquer Rome. He came to conquer sin and death. The second fulfillment of the prophecy was in what the people said and what they did. 
Psalm 118 says, Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're shouting verses at him from Psalm 118, which are messianic. Now, a messianic psalm speaks of the Messiah. That's what a messianic psalm is. And so they recognize, many recognize him as the Messiah. He's, they're recognizing him. They're honoring him as their king. And by laying their coats on the ground, they are absolutely acknowledging him as king. We see this in 2 Kings when Jehu had been anointed as king over Israel. 2 Kings 9.13 says, Then each man hastened to take his garment and put it under him on top of the steps, and they blew trumpets, saying, Jehu is king. So by laying their garments down on the ground in front of Jesus, they were declaring him king over all of Israel. And by laying palm branches down in front of him, they were not only rejoicing, they were claiming victory. Now let me explain the significance of that. Remember the Feast of Sukkot? And we celebrated it here not long ago. They would take palm branches during that feast and they would wave them, according to the scripture, rejoicing before the Lord. So on that first day of Sukkot, that's what they did. They took palm branches and they, they waved them and rejoiced before the Lord. We see that in Leviticus 23. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day of the fruit, first day, the fruit of the beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. The Feast of Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles, was a remembrance of God's presence with the people in the desert. They were to build booths to remind them of their journey through the desert, and they were to be reminded of God's promises and of His presence with them through that journey. So by laying palm branches down at the feet of Jesus, they're unwittingly saying, God is with us. God has come to tabernacle with us. The book of Revelation, we see palms in the hands of the saints who have been given victory in Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 9, verses 7, rather, verses 9 through 10 say, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number of all the nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So by laying palm branches down at the feet of Jesus as he comes into the city, they're unwittingly saying, we have victory in you, Lord Jesus. And we, when we put all this symbolism together, we see that the people are actually declaring him as their king. They're confirming that he's the Messiah come to dwell with them and that he has come to bring them victory. Now we can look at that and in hindsight see what the actual meaning of all that symbolism is for us. It's, it's to bring victory over sin and death. And yes, the Messiah has come to dwell within our hearts, right? But the people in that day, on March 29, 33 A.D., saw it in a whole different light. They saw Jesus as the king who came to give them victory over the Romans, to drive the Romans out and to free them from Roman oppression. So they got it mixed up. They missed his day of visitation. And that's exactly what we're going to see here in a few moments. Luke got, Luke's gospel tells us what happens next. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these, 
if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. So now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. So Jesus has taken a long route from Bethpage to Bethany, up over the Mount of Olives, and down, and believe me, when I say down, this is all... I know I've told you all roads in Israel go up. This is one that goes down. And it's so steep, you actually have to lean backwards as you're going down. Your thighs are screaming at the end of this thing. It's an amazing leg workout. But he's riding this on a donkey. So he goes down the mount to the Garden of Gethsemane into into the city of Jerusalem. And from that vantage point, you can see the city of Jerusalem very, very clearly. You can see the temple very clearly. He crosses the the Kidron Valley... And he weeps. He weeps. Not for his fate, not for what's about to happen to him. He weeps for the fate of the people of Jerusalem. And he weeps because they did not know the day of their visitation. This could have went a lot differently for them. Now, unless someone calls you and tells you they're coming over, you really don't know if you're going to get a visit today from somebody you haven't seen in a while, do you? Anybody could knock on your door. For some, that's a good thing. And for others, not, maybe not so much. I remember my mother, God bless her, she loved to visit people, especially my, my relatives, right? And my father used to call it gallivanting. He said, what did you do all day? Were you out gallivanting all over creation? What were you doing? Well, she was out spreading cheer to all our friends and relatives. Not exactly, not exactly, especially if, if myself and my brothers were in tow, which we normally were. My, me and my brothers, and I'll confess right here, we were a three-member demolition team. Your house never looked the same as it did when we left, ever. And I don't know if it ever did after that. But I remember pulling in front of my aunt's house one day, and my mother sending one of my brothers up to knock on the door to see if they were home. Now, you could clearly, from the car, see the curtains in the window move. Someone was obviously home. But when my brother knocked on that door, no one came to answer. <laughs> And as I look back today, I can, I can picture them inside there cowering in the corner. You know, said, don't answer the door, don't answer, praying that we went away, right? My mother never called and told anybody she was coming over because she would never have been invited anywhere, especially if she said, hey, I'm coming over with the boys. It would have been click. That would have been it. So she would bring the demolition team with her just hoping that she'd catch somebody unaware, you know. But the point is, unless someone tells you they're coming, you don't know that they're coming. How do you know you're going to get a visitor today? So how are the people of Israel supposed to know the day of their visitation? How would they know that the Messiah was coming to them? Well, I'm glad you asked me that question. Please turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel 9. We're going to look at a couple short verses. How many of you are familiar with the 70-week prophecy? Two of you? Well, I guess three. I'll have to go back over Daniel. Four. Do I hear five? Go on. Let's go on. Say five. We got five in the back. <laughs> Wish I could do an auctioneer's voice. That would be cool. So Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 23. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore consider the matter and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish their transgression, to make an end of sins, to make, rec- 
reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The streets shall be built again in the wall and in troublesome times, and after the sixty-two weeks Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the Prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood, until the end of the war desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, and in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. There's a lot going on in those few short verses. God hears Daniel's prayer. Daniel's prayer is in that chapter. And he sends Gabriel, his angel, to give Daniel an answer to a vision that he had. And Gabriel explains to Daniel that there's 70 weeks. Not weeks as we understand them, they're weeks of years. So try and follow along with me because it gets a little... I'm going to try and make this as simple as possible. So in other words, weeks of years, instead of there being seven days, which makes up a week for us, that seven days would represent seven years. So seven times seven is how much? You get an A for that. So The angel breaks down the 70 weeks of years into three separate time periods. Seven weeks of years, of course, of the 49 years. Then there's 62 weeks of years, which is 434 years. And then there's one week of seven years, which is seven years. Now, if you're quick with math, that 70 weeks of years turns out to be 490 years total. Now, the time frame of this prophecy covers from the decree of King Artaxerxes, which allowed Nehemiah to rebuild the city, the walls, the streets, all of that, right? You'll find that in Nehemiah chapter 2. To the death of the Messiah, which is where we're coming up to now in our time frame, and then it even covers the seven-year tribulation. So it's a pretty far-reaching, all-encompassing prophecy. I notice some of you are already starting to bundle up. Air conditioning season has begun. <laughs> Air conditioning wars, I should say. Time to get the blankets out. So the first part of this prophecy that Daniel's given is 49 years. And that's the time it took to rebuild the temple and the walls and the streets and, and get the city back up and running. The second part of the prophecy covers from the time the city is rebuilt and ready to go up until the day the Messiah, the Prince, would come, right? And that's another 434 years. Well, guess what happens? From the time the temple's rebuilt and the streets restored and the walls rebuilt, 434 years later, guess what day that is? Well, it just happens to be March 29th, 33 AD, the very day that Jesus enters into Jerusalem as the Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah King. Just as the prophecy said, he would enter into the city on that very day. They should have known this, especially those who studied the scriptures daily. They should have known from Daniel's prophetic vision that the Messiah the King would come on that very day. 
Now, the people who are there welcoming him, whether they knew this prophecy or not, are doing that very thing. They're welcoming him as the Messiah King, the, the Mashiach Nagid. And there were so many times throughout our study of John that they wanted to just grab Jesus and arrest him, right? There were so many times when the people wanted to grab him and make him be king, but Jesus slipped through their hands every single time because what did Jesus say? It is not yet my time. This was his time. He knew the prophecy. He knew this was the very day that he was to enter into Jerusalem to fulfill this prophecy and be declared king, be, be declared the Messiah king. And they should have known by knowing scripture the day of their visitation. How cool is all of that? But wait, there's more. I know, right? I mean, who can't make this stuff up. People think we have, but it's a little tough. You'd have to be in control of a lot of events, right? The prophecy tells us that the Messiah, the king, would be cut off. Does anyone know what that means in Hebrew? Cut off? Killed. Then the Messiah, the king, would be killed, not for himself, meaning he would be killed for the sake of others. And we, of course, know that Jesus died for you and I, just as Paul wrote. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8 And there's more. There's even more to this. I know, it's almost too much to even comprehend. There's a week missing, isn't there? There's 49 years, and there's 434 years, which equal how much? 483 years. The prophecy was for 70 weeks or 490 years, so we're missing a week. We're missing seven years. And part of that prophecy obviously has yet to be fulfilled. That represents the seven years of tribulation, and it talks about that when the Antichrist enters into the rebuilt temple and he commits the abomination of desolation just like, let's see how many Bible scholars we have here, just like who I, who I told you represent was a type of Antichrist. Remember the name? Antiochus Epiphanes. There you go. You guys do pay attention. You can't make this stuff up. This is the very hand of God. Someone has always said that prophecy is God's signature in the Bible. It's something you can't make up. When something like that happens and prophecy comes true, that's God's signature on the Bible. That's God's hand on the Bible. There's no other explanation how Jesus could enter into Jerusalem on the very day that Daniel predicted he would. That he would be killed for our transgression. If that isn't the hand of God, I don't know what is. Now, if God is that meticulous in fulfilling that prophecy... He's going to make sure that all the other prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled will be just as meticulously fulfilled. And there's something that we can't miss in all of this. We shouldn't miss in all of this. And that is that God expects us to know Scripture. He expected them to know the day of their visitation, right? He expects us to know Scripture. He expects us to know the prophecies concerning Jesus because He is coming again. And He does not want us to be ignorant of his return. Amen? Verse 16, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. We have the benefit of hindsight. We can look back into the scriptures beginning in, in Genesis 
and see God's plan unfold right before us. They didn't have that benefit. They were living in the moment, and they thought Jesus all along was the Messiah King who came to lead them against Rome. Even his disciples believed that. And that's evident when they argued over who would be the greatest. And I think in part they were arguing over who was going to be Jesus' right-hand man when he established his kingdom over Rome, over Jerusalem, and, and, and drove Rome out. But when he died on the cross, all of that changed for them. And it wasn't until the resurrection that they began, and no doubt with the help of the Holy Spirit, they began to put the pieces together to see how this all fit into God's plan. They had time at that point to reflect, and they began to see that plan that God had all along unfold right before their eyes. And you know what? The same thing happens to us when we spend time with the Lord. When we spend time with God and we reflect on who He is and we reflect on the promises that He's made to us, we begin to see His plan for our lives. We begin to see it unfold right before our very eyes. We begin to see what God has in store for us, even though we're living in this world that we live in. You know, before... We couldn't see the forest for the trees, so to speak, right? But then when we spend time with him, when we meditate on his word, we begin to see things clearer than we ever had before. And then we're, when we spend time with him, when we sit at his feet, we become well-informed, well-studied, and full of answers for those who want to know the hope that lies inside each one of us. Therefore the people, verse 17, who were there with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, bore witness. For this reason the people also met him because they heard the things that he had done. They heard that he had done these, this sign. So the people, the multitude, many of those people, many of those two million people that were in Jerusalem at that time came out to greet their king. And they had heard all about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. They remarked, remember the remark the people had said, when the Messiah comes, will he do more signs than this man Jesus? And what they're saying in a roundabout way is, how many signs do we need to see to be convinced that he truly is the Messiah? But look at the reason they're following him. They heard that Jesus raised this man, Lazarus, from the dead. The man who had been dead three days in the tomb, Jesus raised him up from the dead. And it begs the question, were they following him simply because of what he could do? Like the multitude who followed him because he fed them and he healed them? Or did they truly want him to be their Messiah King? Did they truly want him to be their Savior? Maybe there's a different agenda here altogether. I mean, a man who can raise people from the dead, the man who could raise a guy from the tomb who had been dead for three days, he could lead anybody into revolt against Roman soldiers, right? I mean, he raised somebody from the dead. He can do anything. Today we love movies like Captain Marvel, The Avengers, Superman, Spider-Man, Iron Man. I mean, I do at least. So Jesus was, in those days, at that time, to those people at that time, he was a man sent from God to save them. Not from sin, but from Rome. He was, in their eyes, their superhero. If he could raise a man from the dead who had been dead for three days, he could do anything. Listen, there is nothing that God can't do. And I think we get disappointed and we even get mad at God when we pray for something and we don't get the answer that we want when it's not answered the way we want it answered. And, I, and listen, I've, I'm just as guilty of that myself. 
And we must always remember that God has a plan, not only for us, but for our loved ones. The ultimate goal that God has for all who believe is to what? To be gathered together with Him in heaven. That's His ultimate goal. You know, I always thought as, as a dad that if I ever won the lottery, I would buy this huge piece of land and build all of my kids a house and have like a Disbrow compound. And that's just the dad's heart wanting to have his kids near him. So I can imagine God, who's got a so much bigger heart and so much greater love for his children, wants his children to be gathered to him. So when our time is done here on this earth, when we finish what we've, what he's asked us to do, what we're called to do, he brings us home to him. Now some have already made that trip. And, and one day all of us will make that trip. We'll all go home. And if we're still here when the Lord calls us, there's going to be a whole bunch of us, like a group trip, that go up together to meet Him in the clouds. We call that the rapture, right? Now, Jesus is going to be crucified here in a few days. This is only a few days. This is Sunday. By Friday, He will be brought before the Sanhedrin. By next Sunday, He'll have risen from the dead. He'll have risen from the grave. He did all of that so that He would go to heaven to prepare a place for us. So that where he is, we will be also. He prepared a place for us in our home. This is not our home. This is a temporary place, just a temporary dwelling place. Our home is with him in heaven. And as for the suffering in this life, and there is suffering in this life, isn't there? Jesus said there would be. We're going to suffer. But we're also, Scripture also says that we're going to learn from that suffering. We're going to grow through that suffering. And we're going to be able to help others, comfort others in the suffering when they go through it. Paul called the sufferings of this life a momentary light affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory. And then he goes on to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So whether he saves us from it, or preserves us through it, or we succumb to it, the ultimate goal of God is that all of his children be gathered to him in our home. And that no matter what we go through in this life, no matter what pain we suffer in this life, Jesus said he would be with us always, even to the end of the age. So Jesus is with us every step of the way, no matter what we go through. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So try as they might, the Pharisees could not turn the people away from Jesus. But all that, of course, is going to change in just a few short days. Because this same crowd who declared him today to be king, the Messiah, the Mashiach and the Gid, would cry, not too long from now, crucify him, crucify him. When given the choice between Jesus and Barabbas, they chose who? They chose the world over Jesus. They chose death over life. When he didn't turn out to be their conquering hero, they no longer had any use for him. Jesus then became despised and rejected by the very people who showed such love toward him on this day. See, they not only missed the signs of his coming, they missed the purpose of his coming. 
But the next time he comes to this earth, there will be no mistaking his identity or his purpose. He will not humbly ride in on a donkey. The next time, our king comes on a horse. Jesus showed John this very day when he will return in his vision in the book of Revelation. Listen to this. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed in in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is honored in Jerusalem as he rides in that day as the king. But by the very next week, these very people who are honoring him are going to judge him. They're going to judge him as a troublemaker. And they're going to ask for him to be put to death. But when he comes back riding on that horse with all the saints and the angels with him, it's not going to be for a social visit. He's coming to judge the living and the dead. And those who judged him will be judged. He's coming to establish his kingdom here on this earth for a thousand years. And the whole world will see him. In Revelation chapter 5 we read, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Paul wrote to the Philippians that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul also wrote to the Romans, For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So whether you declare Jesus as your King and as your Messiah in this life, whether you bow to the name of Jesus in this life, everyone will see him as Lord and bow to his very name in the end. So he came that day, March 29th, 33 A.D. on a lowly donkey, lowly and humbly and peacefully to bring restoration to a people who had been separated by, to God by sin. But when he returns, it will be as a judge. Peace will be replaced by the sudden terror of knowing that Jesus truly is the Messiah King, that he is the Mashiach Nagid. And the chance for restoration at that point is gone. Those who died separated from God by sin are going to remain that way for all eternity. They're going to remain separated from Him for all eternity. Yes, there's going to be a much different scene on that day than there is on this day here in Jerusalem over 2,000 years ago. So what's the application for us in all of this? We don't have the prophecy that tells us when his return is going to be, do we? Now, I know there's been plenty of books written saying that they had the prophecy that they knew. You know, like 1,999 reasons why Jesus will return in 1999. And then, of course, we have my dear friend Harold Camping, 
who said that he would return in what year is that? 2011, I believe it was. Amazing. But none of us know the exact date. Jesus said no one knows the day or the hour. So we don't know when his coming will be. There is no prophecy that says this is the exact day that he will return like Daniel gave, was, like was given to Daniel. So we don't know when he's coming back. And because we don't know the day or the hour, it's even more urgency for us to go out and spread the gospel message. Because whether Jesus comes back today or tomorrow or next week, for anyone that we speak to, or any one of us, today could be the last day of our time here on this earth. And the next time we open our eyes, or they open their eyes, could be just as Daniel the prophet described. He said, And many of those who slept in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. What they open, what we open our eyes to, will greatly depend on if our eyes were opened in this life as to who Jesus was, that Jesus is the Messiah King. Amen? Now, if you remember from last week's message, and I'm going to ask each one of you personally if you did, no. Our ministry on this earth, in part, is to open those eyes that have been blinded to sin. Open their eyes to the fact that Jesus Christ is the Savior, that He is Lord, that He is the Messiah King, because their eternal destiny depends on it. So the application for us is to spread the gospel message far and wide, because no one knows the day or the hour. But we do know that He is coming back. And we want them to be just as prepared for His next coming as they should have been prepared in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Amen? Lord we thank you for your word we thank you for who you are and Lord we thank you for this message today let it resonate in our hearts and minds as we go through our week that you are who you say you are Lord and that you are our King our Lord, our Savior it is in your name that we pray Amen